Ryan Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Blackhall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives. With a vision for Blackhall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless, Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. This is the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. Today on the podcast, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Wes Longhofer of Emory University, located right here in Atlanta, Georgia. A sociologist from the Midwest, Longhofer is co-lead on the exciting newly formed Roberto C. Goizueta Business and Society Institute. What's the goal? To transform business to solve the problems of inequality and climate change through cutting-edge programming and principled leadership. We're going to talk to Dr. Longhofer about these incredibly ambitious goals, and maybe he'll tell us about how it was to have the Dalai Lama teach one of his classes. Yes, the Dalai Lama is a presidential scholar at Emory University, and he visits Atlanta frequently. We'll try to get him on the podcast on his next visit. This is a fascinating topic to explore and important to understand at this moment in time. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Today we have Wes Longhofer, who is the Executive Academic Director of the Goizeta Business and Society Institute at Emory University. Wes, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So the Institute is newly rebranded. It's a new name, a new brand, uh, but it's the second phase of social impact work at the Guizueta Business School. Tell us about some of the goals and like what you guys are trying to achieve. Well, at a high level, it's really to kind of reimagine and transform business to catalyze positive social and environmental impact. Uh, I'm a sociologist, and I always tell my students on the first day, look, I've never worked for a corporation. I've never started my own business. I've never even taken a business class. Instead, I just think about these big social problems in front of us and the role of innovation in business and, and generating solutions and how can we change the conversation a bit in a business school to think about these bigger problems, things like climate change, inequality, issues of democracy, and the role that business can play in creating positive change. Let's talk a little bit about climate change. Give me some examples of like, you know, if you were advising Coca-Cola, right? Coca-Cola is here in town. I'm sure you get to interact with a lot of Coca-Cola people. From time to time. You know, because Coca-Cola money largely funded Emory from the beginning, right? A lot of its growth. Yep, absolutely. So let's imagine that the Coca-Cola people came to you and they said, Wes, doctor. (laughs) We were joking beforehand. Wes's wife is a medical doctor. Yeah, she's a physician at Grady Mm -hmm. doing like, you know, real work. I mean, the last year's got to be amazing, like the crazy work that she's been doing. Yeah, she does a lot of health disparities work. She's an endocrinologist and runs their gender center um, and works in their diabetes clinic. And then COVID on top of that and the complications it creates for diabetic patients. It's just been a whirlwind for her. But um, yeah, no, she's she's incredible. I always say, if you like me, you should really meet Sonia. (laughs) She'll blow your mind. Um, (laughs) That's a good way to feel about your spouse. Absolutely, absolutely. So the Coca-Cola board comes to you and they say, Professor Wes, how do we make the world a better place relative to climate change? Well, if it's the board, I'd say get somebody on your board who has responsibility for climate change, right? So you have that voice in those boardrooms. You know, what we need to think about, how do you measure your impacts? How are those impacts material? Think about this as a strategic issue um, because it's going to affect your supply chain. It's going to affect your ability to make money. There's going to be regulatory changes coming down the pike, and you need to be prepared for that. 
but also have some courage. And you know, Coca-Cola is doing incredible things, mm -hmm. um, but climate change takes courageous action and cooperation and collaboration. And I think those things are sometimes uncomfortable for business. Um, how can we cooperate with other companies? How can we cooperate with uh, civil society and government to find sustainable solutions to problems that are affecting everybody and see it as a business problem, but it's also a, a moral issue. It's a justice issue. It's, it's a really complicated thing and um, it's going to take companies to be on board and help lead the way. And companies see this, whether even, even if you look at fossil fuel companies, they sort of see the writing on the wall that the world is changing and there has to, something has to be done around climate. Um, investors are putting pressure on companies. You see walkouts at companies like Amazon. And so I think that's, a, I don't know what the solution for Coca-Cola is. Um, that's where I'd start and say, be part of the conversation. And um, they're doing, they're already a part of it. Uh, but I think there's more that we could all do. So it's that shift from, you know, you'll hear oftentimes in business circles, people say, well, business is business. Which by that, they oftentimes just mean we got to make money. And making money is really all that matters to a business. And it doesn't have to do with anything with our humanity or intellectual virtues, like what you're talking about, courage. So I'm seeing inside of big companies that shift. I'm hearing lots of voices that are starting to say, well, business isn't just business. Business is about the driving force for humanity. It's an economic force, but it also needs to start to consider all the kind of moral, spiritual layers of what it means to be a human being and to consider that in its governance. Exactly. I mean, if you think about what makes markets work, they need to be embedded in a vibrant society and a healthy planet. We've known this for a long time, but I think over time uh, we have decoupled business from the broader society. And now it's becoming a bit of a reckoning moment. And so even the business roundtable statement in 2019, you had business leaders putting out a statement saying, hey, we need to consider all stakeholders. We need to consider our community. We need to consider the planet. And that's not a radical shift. They've said similar things before, but I think the moment is different. We see it in my students. When I first started teaching this business and society class that's part of this institute, nine years ago, I had 12 MBAs, 16 undergraduates. Now I have 200 students every fall. And that's not me. I've talked to so many other professors at other business schools who are teaching in this space, and they have the same story. Um, we had Rebecca Henderson from Harvard speak to our launch event earlier this month. She has the same story there. She taught a reimagining capitalism class at Harvard Business School, had a couple dozen students the first year, and now she has two or 300. And these are our future business leaders who are asking these questions. Um, when I first started teaching, not knowing what I was going to do in a business school and designing this class, I'd get questions on the first day, like, you know, how do I make an impact? How do I give back? How do I write a CSR report? First question I got this last fall was, how do I know if the Black Lives Matter statement by my company is authentic or not? That's a very different question than what I got in 2013 when I first started. Um, and so I think this is, there is a shift. It is an inflection point for business. And it really is about rebuilding trust in economic institutions. And uh, I think business has to lead that conversation and say, look, we provide the jobs, we provide the goods and services, but we also need to be a part of that trust building process. And how can we engage in that? Which requires companies to be transparent, to think about empathy as a business value. Uh, and that's you know uncomfortable for business generally, but we see lots of examples of companies doing this. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's just a really exciting time for us to be launching this institute and be a part of that conversation, both in Atlanta and, and around the world. Well, one of the ways that capitalist enterprises can combat socialism is by engaging in society. Absolutely. And it's about thinking about what is value? What does growth look like? Uh, and can we define growth in a different way that takes into account harm on the planet, that takes into account growing inequality in the cities in which we operate? And think about value in this really multidimensional way that we need to create economic value, of course, but we need to create environmental value and social value too. And I always tell my students, this should be exciting for them because this, this is a, a bigger challenge. It makes their business education uh, harder, but think about the impact that this could have if we can figure this out. Well, when I think about the relationship between government and free enterprise, I always want government to legislate freedom. And then I want free enterprise to be responsible enough to educate choice. So in a perfect world, we're doing exactly what you're doing, which is where companies become reflective. They take on these virtues, these human virtues, and they start to think about their society without having it mandated on them, right? I think that one of the reasons why people push towards kind of socialistic tendencies is they lose trust, right? So they lose trust that there are real human beings running companies, real human beings with real souls and uh, real empathy. And they start to say, these enterprises are very important to our society, but they're controlled by sociopaths or megalomaniacs or narcissists. And they say, we're going to have to mandate that these people have empathy, right? And that's what maybe socialism oftentimes is. The way that you know capitalism can fight against those tendencies, those socialist tendencies, is to actually be good actors. Absolutely. And look, for markets to work, rules have to be fair, right? And rules have to be set. And it's in business's best interest to have those rules be clear and the rules be fair, to allow them to compete and to allow them to innovate and to facilitate that. And that really is the role of policy. And we have sort of lost sight of that, I think. We think about the role of business in shaping institutions and have we kind of forgot that sometimes those institutions are serving a different set of interests and create some imbalance. And even the conversations we're having now about how much power should social media companies have? And do we need some kind of regulatory body? I don't know what the solution is, but we need to have that discussion and we need to think about what institutions need to be put in place to allow the best of business to flourish and really allow the market to work in the way it's supposed to. And I'll occasionally have these conversations about, well, isn't this, when, when students are asking about climate change or asking about um, social impact, isn't this just socialism? I said, they're all working for our best companies. I don't think it's about socialism. I think it's that they just want businesses to, to, care. to care and to recognize mm -hmm. that they're a part of a bigger society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did you get interested in these topics? I mean, because you, it sounds like your background is academic in sociology. Yeah. Was your PhD in sociology? Yeah, I got my PhD in sociology at the University of Minnesota. I was doing work on environmental protection efforts around the world. I'd done some work in India interviewing philanthropists. I was curious about how people form organizations, whether it's civic organizations, uh, nonprofits and NGOs, and the effect those organizations have on policy outcomes. And I was doing work on some child rights issues, women's rights issues, environmental protection issues. Never thought it would end up in a 
business school. And a colleague of mine from memory uh, sent me an email and said, are you on the job market? Have you thought about business schools? And I wrote back saying no and no. I, had, I had, hadn't crossed my mind. I just thought I would end up teaching social theory somewhere. And it was right when my colleague Peter Roberts was uh, setting up the Social Enterprise Center at Guizueta. And they wanted somebody who was doing disciplinary work on organizations. Didn't really care what kind of organizations it was. And um, came down, gave a job talk, and ended up in a business school. And realized on the first day that you know credibility really matters in a classroom, right? It's about building trust in a classroom. And I didn't have the business experience. Um, so I was going to be as authentic as I could be and just say, hey, I'm a sociologist, thinks about big social problems. Um, you're future entrepreneurs and business leaders. Um, let's figure it out. Let's find some, let's, let's harness all your best ideas and I'll talk about when there will be unintended consequences or other things to consider. But it's been a wild ride, but it's been a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, I feel at home and feel like I get to ask questions that sometimes don't get asked, but I've, I've learned a ton and I've kind of learned business just through osmosis of being in the business school. Um, but still have that sort of sociological edge. How has that shifted your thinking on these topics? I'm a, at the end of the day, I'm really a pragmatist. And we call the research in our institute is what sociologist Monica Prasad calls pragmatic problem solving. You know, be rational, be skeptical. You can be emancipatory. You want to make the world better, but ground it in real world problems. And that's what I really like. Business school is about real world problems. Um, usually they're fairly traditional business problems, but I think that the things that we think about in the Institute, these big, what we call systems thinking kinds of problems, business has a real role to play. And I tell my students, and, I, and this has been, I think, reinforced being in a business school is that there's no single lever you can pull to achieve social change, right? There's no single policy. There's no single leader who's going to do it. There's no single idea or innovation. A mentor of mine from graduate school said, what we need is a bee swarm. We don't really know what's going to work. We just need a bee swarm of activity moving in the same general direction with the same goals. And those goals globally are like the sustainable development goals that we need gender equity, we need uh, to fix the climate issue, we need to focus on life underwater and life above land, we need to create responsible institutions, affordable and sustainable cities, and business is a part of that. But so is civil society, so is government, and figuring out just ways we can cooperate and for business to listen to society and for society to recognize that business is where innovation is going to come from. And uh, society can play that role of be, you know, holding business accountable. But I think our solutions are going to come in large part from innovations in, in the private sector. When you talk about society holding business accountable, one of the things that you know I think about is cancel culture right now. Um, sometimes that feels like totally inappropriate social accountability for business um, because it feels like it, it ceases to be a dialogue. It ceases to respect the business's ability to change course, right? Because these are big aircraft carrier businesses. They, they take a minute, right, to start to make their changes or whatever. And even like with a lot of the canceling of individuals, you know, I get concerned about that process because I think, you know, society is evolving the things society is talking about today is different than they were talking about five years ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. The things that society uh, brushed off five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago evolves. So when I watch like people getting held accountable for 
tweets they tweeted 10 years ago or people things that uh, people participated in 20 years ago, that doesn't feel very human to me. doesn't feel very uh, ethical um, or morally advanced. Where, what do you think the, the healthy ways for society to hold business and business leaders accountable is? You know, I think that's a really difficult question. And I think it's a really fair point that if you think about what the challenge with companies is there's no democratic accountability kind of by design, right? And this is why we shouldn't rely upon companies to look after public goods because we don't have that. We can vote with our pocketbooks to some extent, um, but not really. I mean, that takes a huge movement to do that. And so civil society is using this opportunity to hold companies accountable for uh, statements that are made that are insensitive or hurtful because there aren't many other mechanisms. Now, does it go too far? Sure. I really struggled with Twitter taking Trump off the platform, even though I was so happy to not read Trump's tweets anymore. I was like, that. I don't know if that's the power, if, how much power does the company have to do that? And we need public dialogue to come to grips with that because changes are happening so fast. And if the only sort of remedy is either a company kicking an individual off a platform or civil society canceling somebody, and there's no other opportunity. And if we're going to cancel somebody, do we also have an obligation to allow for redemption? And how do we forgive? And I sometimes think we lose sight of that. That said, I think this is one method that is really important for communities that are hurt by statements to hold somebody accountable when they feel like there's no other way to do so. But it's not, I mean, it, yeah, I, this is a topic that's been coming in class the last couple of years, and I always struggle with it because I don't know what the solution is. Even look at what's happening now in Atlanta with calls for boycotts against leading companies around this voting bill. That's a an effort to try and hold companies accountable. Is it right? I don't know. Um, is it going to be effective? I don't know. Most boycotts aren't. Um, but is it recognizing that companies have influence and we want companies to be leaders on social and political issues. Yeah. I think it's sort of pulling back the curtain and saying that these things have never been that clean. The companies have always been involved in politics. Companies have always been this tension with society. That's why I tell my students that even if we take a current thing happening in 2020, 2021, look at 200 years of corporate history. It's always been this push and pull between businesses and the communities that surround them. In some ways, this isn't new. It just feels new because the methods are different. Well, you've had 200 years in many ways of businesses building their societies, right? You think about yeah. like company towns. You know, you build a manufacturing facility, and 100 years ago, then you had to build housing. They built libraries. They funded universities. They provide opportunities for lifelong employment. They paid pensions. Like, it was... They were central mm -hmm. to American civic life. And things have changed quite a bit. And now I think the growth of tech companies, where we talk about the power of Amazon and the power of Walmart, et cetera, it's that next phase where companies sort of come into grips with their own power and society distrusting a lot of it. Um, and so I'm hoping that through this institute and through my job as an educator is uh, I want my students to go into the workforce and help rebuild this faith in these, in these institutions. And there's a high road to capitalism. 
and our students can lead that high road to capitalism, or they can follow the low road, and these problems will continue. Well, it sounds on some level like you're describing this notion that the real leadership you want is like philosopher kings, right? And, and that certainly hasn't been something that's been encouraged in American business for generations, it doesn't feel like. So tell me what you think, like define a sort of modern philosopher king. Well, I mean, you you noted that businesses don't really, they're, they're not built for um, democratic accountability because they don't function well because democracies oftentimes make terrible business decisions. That would be you know, not a good way to, Elon Musk would never have achieved the things that he's achieved if he was dependent on a democracy. Right. Frankly, he'd never have achieved any, the things that he, he has achieved if he was dependent on a board saying yes. Right. 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 I mean, a, a benevolent dictatorship oftentimes is the best entrepreneurial venture. That's how you achieve the greatest yeah, things because yeah, enough, you yeah. can you can have the biggest imagination. You don't have to justify your decisions. You can just go for it. And that's how we get the Amazons of the world and the Teslas of the sure, world. Sure. Right. Um, and so in that world where there's not democratic accountability, then you need a leader if you're going to achieve the kind of things that you're talking about. And, and right now, you know, our best example would be the tech companies because a lot of the older companies, they don't have entrepreneurial leadership anymore because they're multi-generational. So you right, get right. one generation of entrepreneurial leadership and then you get administrative leadership. Yeah. And, and administrative bureaucratic leadership can be really good. Like you can perpetuate the brand, you can perpetuate the products, you can perpetuate the business. But you've lost your courageous warrior, right? Your, your adventurer, your uh, globetrotter, your, you've lost your Magellan, you know, you've lost, you've lost the guy who's willing to get in a boat and just go out and see what happens. Right. And so what you're imagining this kind of philosopher King, which is somebody who has a lot of power, has a lot of access to capital, has a lot of influence over culture, both the culture of the company and the culture of the society. You need those people to then be philosophically inclined to self-reflect engage in a philosophical discussion with society and then to find ways to live in and enable and embody an integration that only comes from highly philosophical thinking, which is what you do for a living, right? But you need to have those people that both have power and ethics, right? Power and and not just ethics, but morality, like the big, not, not morality, like don't do that, but morality in the sense of like a deep conversation about what the, the archetype of humanity really should be. And then to implement that. But that's so difficult to find because so many of these companies are now run by people that have no training or no inclination, no soul inclination to those kind of questions. Well, I think it's hard to find generally, right? Like, I don't think that we have... Uh, the public intellectuals that society needs to have real debates over ideas, right? And, the, and for a lot of different reasons, which is partly one explanation for why we have an increasing number of CEO activists, right? It's that we are sort of clamoring for leadership and we want to hear business leaders take stances because they're going to take stances in the context of their business. And so it's that combination of moral leadership and strategic decision-making. And so I think that creates this desire for business leaders to be those philosopher kings or to make to be our public intellectuals and make moral statements and be moral leaders it's risky in some ways but i think it's great as a sociologist i kind of want a whole ecosystem 
of big ideas and to have create spaces for dialogue and debate and discussion and innovation. And I want our institute to sort of be that space in a business school, that this is where we can ask uncomfortable questions because the point is to ask the question. I don't know what the answers are. I tell my students all the time, don't come to me for answers. I'm a sociologist. We, our whole business thrives on problems, not solutions. <laughs> um, I don't know what those solutions like are. Like attorneys. Going. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> don't get paid as well. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I hadn't thought about it in the context of philosopher kings, but public dialogue and civil discourse and uh, thought leadership from the business community, I think, is 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 important. But there's not; it doesn't feel like there's actually room right now for real dialogue. It doesn't feel like society is providing space for candid conversation. No, um, and that's very discouraging to me because if you're going to have real conversation, if you're going to create a real society that has real freedom, where people get to shape their own destiny through their own choices, then Donald Trump gets to be on Twitter. That's just the facts, right? The moment that you cancel Donald Trump from Twitter is the moment you say there is no dialogue. That's just a fundamentally flawed way to approach a free society, in my opinion, right? So we have to come to terms somehow with the fact that we're going to hear ideas we don't like if we're going to have a real discourse. I, I feel like I can hear ideas from people all the time that I don't like. Don't ask me to implement them. Don't ask me to live by your ideas that I don't like. Allow me the freedom as an American to choose my own adventure. I agree, but ideas can also cause harm. And we need, gosh, I mean, how do we allow for dialogue and free ideas, but limit the harm that those ideas can cause? We burn books. That's a terrible idea, right? It's a terrible idea to burn books. Karl Marx had a lot of crazy ideas that have messed up the world in many ways when people tried to implement them. I don't want to burn Karl Marx books. I think Karl Marx ideas are deserving of a space on the shelf. The people that then choose to take that book off the shelf, read it, and implement those ideas, that's their responsibility. But we don't go burn the books. So th that's the piece where I feel like we're making mistakes in that we're not protecting the library. It doesn't matter what Donald Trump says. Donald Trump is part of the library, if you're in a free society where there's free speech, yeah, sure. right? And so then we need to educate people around how to deal with bad ideas. It doesn't mean we turn them off. doesn't mean we pretend like they don't exist. doesn't mean we put them in jail for bad ideas. We don't jail people for bad ideas, I hope. I agree. I right? agree. Right. right? I, and I don't know the answer because I'm watching this stuff really like from afar because I'm not really part of the dialogue of that part of the community. Uh, but watching it saying, what are we doing wrong as a society that we are so afraid of bad ideas? I would probably phrase it differently to say, what are the conditions in society that produce those ideas and create these platforms? And so it's a different question. It's one thing to have bad ideas and put them on Twitter. It's another thing to elect somebody with bad ideas who happens to put them on Twitter. Um, and I think that's a structural question. And, and I don't think that we have figured that out. Um, but the actual regulation of ideas, I have really mixed feelings about. And but then I think, okay, but it's a company. They have terms of service. They, 
they can do this. Um, well, I, 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 have no, I, I have no problem at all with a company having terms of service and canceling somebody because they great. As long as we apply that standard across the board, then I, you know, I, I want the philosopher Kings that own their companies to get to do what they do. The problem is right now, like we've created all these regulations around employment. So if the philosopher King says, this guy's bad for the kingdom out, it doesn't work like that anymore. Right? So you've taken away the power of the company to hire and fire at will. It's become like this incredibly difficult process to get rid of people. I mean, Europe is the worst right now. Like if you're a business owner in Europe and you want to fire somebody because you don't think they're good at their job, you don't even have that prerogative. You, you have to create a file that's like two inches thick of failure before you might even possibly be able to fire them without having some big lawsuit on your hands or some government entity on your hands. You know, So trying to figure out this balance between philosopher king accountability and philosopher king freedom inside of a company i would love to see more freedom i would love I, I jack dorsey should be able to cancel whoever he wants right but it shouldn't be because the pol- it shouldn't be around politics it shouldn't be a government intervention it should be all right jack dorsey canceled whoever he wanted but he doesn't then get to say that he wants a free society that's what he did. I know. Right? But do you want to build a platform where people can say what they want? Okay, well, now we know that's not Twitter. You can't say what you want on Twitter. If you say the wrong things, you're going to get canceled by Jack Dorsey. So now Trump's going to build an, uh, whatever. He's going to build his own platform, he says. So how is he going to regulate his own platform? What about, is he going to cancel people who come on and say things that are against Trump? I mean, I, I would bet so. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> but Right? So then, that, then we know that that uh, Trump Twitter whatever he's going to call that thing, Trump Twitter isn't a free society either. It's not a place where you can actually bring ideas and share your truth and let it sit out there in the ether and let people chew on it, sit with it, decide whether or not they think it's good, bad, ugly, indifferent. But have we ever, have we ever had that? I, I would like to think that like there's been, you know, that we, we certainly have the notion in our constitution that we want people to be allowed to put their ideas out into the world and let them sit there and let other people like think about them and not cut off their ability to actually have a post on the, you know, bulletin board of society. But this is why norms are really important, right? So one of the things I uh, have my students read is Milton Friedman's idea of maximizing shareholder value. And even he had a line in there that corporations should maximize shareholder value within the context of ethical custom. Well, what's ethical custom in 2021? It's not what he was imagining 50 years ago, right? So ethical custom means what if you're, there's norms around issues of equality, uh, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, climate change, obligations to community, how you treat your workers. So but are those things that you want to educate the philosopher king on, or are those things that you have to regulate into his life? I, I don't think it's about regulating into his life. It's recognizing the philosopher king exists in society, and these are pressures that are being put on companies. And companies are figuring out ways to operate and recognizing that the pressure is not just external. Right, these are our employees. Um, employees are asking, and a lot of social responsibility initiatives come from within companies. Uh, employees pushing and saying, "Hey, we need to have policies for same-sex benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have policies around breastfeeding, mm-hmm. uh, and and making the workplaces more inclusive." Mm-hmm. And companies are responding to that because it, we want our employees to believe in the company. We want them to be engaged. That's that's just good management practice. Well, and as long as it's, it's regulation, I think it's 
Yeah, as long as the company's saying, my best workers need these things, my best workers want these things. If I don't do these things, my company is going to suffer, become a worse culture. We're not going to be able to perform. We're not going to be able to compete. Right. Right. That all makes perfect sense to me. Just like taking great care of your employees is good business practice because you attract more talent and then you can achieve more as a company. Trying to find that that balance, like when, where I get concerned is when people are demanding things of companies that may or may not actually help their business, right? right? Actually make their business better. Sometimes like, you know, diversity is an idea about diversity making things better in the sense that I could say I own a basketball team and if you tell me diversity makes things better and, and you say, you got to have some slow guys, you got to have some short guys, you got to have some guys can't shoot. I go, that doesn't sound like a basketball team. So that's the part that, uh, that I feel like oftentimes in these conversations is neglected, which is, are we taking away from business the freedom to actually hire the people they think are the very best for whatever job at the, just, just because we're going to demand inclusion and diversity, which I'm not against at all. I've been, you know, I, I love hiring people of every flavor and walk of life if they're bringing value. Of course. Right. And that's the piece where the conversation around, you know, what kind of freedom do we allow people to determine as a business owner, as a philosopher king, what is going to result in the most amount of wins for the basketball team? See, I don't think that all social problems are business problems, right? I think when you put it into the context of a business, there are some things that businesses can do, and there are some public goods that businesses can't provide. Agreed. Right? So public education is a, is a great one. Yeah. And so should we put pressure on businesses to invest more in public education? No. Should Agreed. businesses pay taxes so that public education can get the investment it needs? Absolutely. Um, maybe, maybe. Right. Okay, right. Well, you no, know. but it's like yeah. that's 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 where the conversation mm-hmm. should be, right? It's about where is the the business contributing to mm-hmm. that particular problem? But we need I, better I think policy. You, I think you see businesses though. Think about the way businesses contribute to Goizetta, right? They say Coca Cola helped build this stuff because they said we need more executives. Harvard Business School was built because a bunch of businesses didn't have enough people to run their companies. They're running out of bodies. They're like, we need to train some people up because we need people to take over of these course. companies, right? Because we need to be able to grow, and so. They'll the, the businesses will invest in their own survival. Businesses will invest in their own ability to grow. Businesses will invest in their own ability to, to thrive. And so on some level, like if we just let business go, business was creating schools in communities long before it was mandated that they pay taxes to fund education. Sometimes those educational institutions might have been better, right? So there's this balance that I don't know the answer to, but I think this is what you're spending a lot of your time trying to figure out, right? Is where is that balance where we let the businesses be free to do the things that are the best for their life as a business? And where are the things that we try to educate them more about the fact that if they don't pay attention to the environment, we're all going to die, right? It's all going to crumble. Society could crumble. Humanity could cease to exist, these are big, you know, big ugly problems that right. that companies should care about. How do we get the balance between forcing it upon them and continue to just educate them into this understanding of what is important? So I, I think I think you're absolutely right. So I think that that debate between should we be mandating this or can companies select into it because they see a business either a problem or opportunity? I agree with you completely that companies should be able to select into it. 
that but part of that is recognizing that society is nudging them right and and that's different than mandating i think if you're not thinking about climate change as a business problem and not thinking about it's going to affect your supply chain or not listening to what larry fink and investors are saying you're going to be left behind. You're just not paying attention. You're not paying attention. Yeah. And smart business leaders see that. Um, and that's why I really like being in a business school because that, those are the questions my students are asking. I want to work for companies that have purpose. I want to work for companies that are going to treat me well, that are going to be good employers. But I want to work for companies that are thinking about issues of the climate or issues of, of race and diversity um, because – they believe those companies are going to be the best ones to work for. They're going to be the ones that are most successful, those that are willing to have that conversation and recognizing that business plays a role. Um, so on the other side of that is that that's going to affect talent recruitment for business. And if you want the best business students and the best business students are asking these questions, then you have to have answers. 100%. I mean, it's um... – you know, the reason I like sports analogies is because they're so raw, because sports at the end of the day are just one, ones and zeros, right? It's wins and losses. There's no in-between. There's no, we kind of got there. Like, we almost won. Well, there's no almost winning. Like, did you win? Did you lose? And so the reality of a lot of life is there's actually a lot of ones and zeros. You know, there's a lot of times when it's like, well, did we achieve it or did we not achieve it? And business life is like that a lot. So being able to imagine a world where you say, all right, well, how do I create the best culture for the team? How do I get the best talent for the team? How do I uh, create a, an environment where we're going to have a chance to win a championship? Right? Yeah. It, it may, you know, when, it, when I think the, on the philosophical side, you've gotten to spend time with the Dalai Lama, correct? I have. <laughs> what do you, how do you think the Dalai responds to this kind of stuff? <laughs> So the Dalai Lama is a uh, distinguished professor at Emory. So he used to come on a regular basis. He hasn't been in a few years. And I got this phone call. I've been at Emory two years. I got a phone call saying, we have a special guest who wants to come to your class. Um, we can't tell you who it is. We'll tell you later. Um, a few weeks later, they call back. It's the Dalai Lama. All your students have to get background checks. There's metal detectors. Um, I get to my classroom that day, and uh, they tell me before I go in, just so you know, there are four undercover police officers in your class. And I walk in, there's four guys in the back in their mid-40s in black T-shirts. It's like, I think those guys are the undercover. <laughs> it's like 21 Jump Street. It's like, oh, those guys are the undercover ones. Um, and, the, and what we did as a class was uh, we wrote questions as a class, and I randomly assigned students to ask the questions mm -hmm. to make it fair. And so one of the questions that a student asked was, what do I do if my values don't match the values of my company? Right. So this is some of the issues that we, we discussed. Mm -hmm. And the Dalai Lama looked at him and said, change the company. And I kind of looked at him quizzically and said, or leave the company. Next question. And I was like, and the kid's like, yeah, I will. I will change the company or I will leave the company. If I were to say that, like, who's this at? Like <laughs> coming in telling me to leave the company or change the company. But I refer back to that all the time because the Dalai Lama has this way of being incredibly poignant and being really direct of what the fundamental issue is. If your values don't match the company, you don't have to compromise. Mm -hmm. You can change the company. Right? And we see this happen, maybe not a single person, right? But we, oftentimes your values are shared by other values, mm -hmm. uh, by other employees. Um, or you can leave the company. And our students have, what, eight jobs in their 20s? Like they're leaving companies all the time and somebody's principal based. Sometimes, most of the time it's not. Um, most of the time is somebody recruited them away. Of course. Like usually it's because of other opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I don't know what he would say about the this particular issue, except that you know values and principles really matter, and having that empathy and deep compassion for others can motivate a lot of business action, um, and that can be a core business value if you let it. Right, it, it has to be. It has to be, but you know, it, it's not like for a lot of companies that they're saying like one of our core values is compassion for others. It'd be great if it was, but it's oftentimes not not in the top five. People who live in the segments of society that have no compassion also experience oftentimes very little joy, right? So the companies that have no compassion, empathy as a culture are probably miserable places to work. Yeah. Now, I'm not afraid of people living in their own self-made hells because that's part of the freedom of humanity, right? Part of the freedom of humanity is that every day when we wake up, the choices we will make can lead us deeper into happiness, which is what I think of when I think of like heaven, yeah. right? Joy, fulfillment, uh, you know, the greatest achievements of the human soul. Or we can make choices that lead us into an oblivion of absolute misery, which I think of when I think of like damnation, right? Like, you know, if, if there's a notion of damnation, it's that your soul descends into a pit of despair, right? Now, I believe most of that is through a series of choices, both of those. And, and I think as we make those choices, then we start to realize, we, we start to experience in our lives happiness or despair, right? Yeah, but I think our choices, oftentimes, they are constrained, right? They're, they're shaped by things that we don't even recognize. They're made without full information. And so everything is based on choices. But our choice sets are oftentimes socially constructed or constrained. And so we don't always know the consequences of those choices. And so we can make choices with best intentions, but there are lots of best intentions that go awry, Right, that produce 100%. unintended consequences that that may not be compassionate, because we sometimes get so myopic and so tunnel visioned mm-hmm. in the choices that we make mm-hmm. that we don't see the broader impacts. We don't see how they might affect others. We we don't make choices, oftentimes by putting ourselves in the shoes of someone else, especially if we're making those choices right when we wake up in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I I no, I agree. I agree with you, but then as we realize that, then we can adjust course or not adjust course. Right, I mean, the beauty of human life is that when we make mistakes, I think we know it. I think we know it, and then we have a decision to make. Do I own the mistake? Do I recognize the mistake? Do I adjust from the mistake? Or do I try to hide the mistake? Do I try to uh, pretend like it didn't happen? Do I uh, deny it? And then that leads to more mistakes, right? So then I think that the virtue of self-awareness the virtue of radical honesty might be the kind of virtues that are required to then go on a journey that can allow failure to lead to success. But isn't this part of the cancel culture thing that you're concerned about? That if we make mistakes, shouldn't we ask for forgiveness? Shouldn't we seek redemption? 100%. And should we, like, rather than when we mistakes come up, we kind of sort of step back and say, whoa, 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 cancel culture, really? No, it's it's sort of owning up to a mistake means owning up to, to consequences, but asking for forgiveness and seeking redemption. And I think that has to be part of the conversation to mistakes that we make. And I think sometimes we, we lose sight of that. Right, but to the Dolly's point, 
there, oftentimes life works so much better if when you see if you see a life you don't want, you just go in the other direction, right? You don't necessarily go and have to confront everybody about how bad their life is, right? You don't have to you don't have to go out of your way to like you know. Obviously, we have a prison system for people to go over the line. But if you're not going over the line where you're hurting other people, well, then just let everybody be. Let everybody figure their own stuff out. You know, if you don't like XYZ company, you don't have to, like, disparage them necessarily. You don't have to cancel them. You can just go on about your life. Go buy something else. You love Coca-Cola, drink Coca-Cola. You hate Pepsi, don't drink Pepsi, right? And there's a beautiful open-handedness about that that feels like a more spiritual path, right? Be like water, right? Yeah. Kind of like that. That feels like more like what the Dolly would advise than, you know, try to ruin this company because you disagree with X, Y, Z. Yeah. Well, no, when he, when he said change the company, it wasn't ruin the company on Twitter. No, it no. was right. Like inside yeah, out. Right, like inside he, out. He's saying, but, you know, stay the course and change the culture or go on and do something else. Yeah. Right. So, you know, again, like I'm no Dalai Lama. I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, practically how I navigate all these waters as a human who has a lot of opinions and who likes to share things out loud. Of course. And I like that from other people. I want to know people's experience, opinion, desires. um, And I want to hear the fullness of their truth because it might change my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It does feel like, like I have friends across the entire spectrum of uh, political, economic, and I like all their, I want to hear all their opinions. But what I find is that the people in the extremes stop wanting to hear from the other side. Yeah. No, it, that drives me nuts. Yeah. When there's, and there's all sorts of research on how social media just amplifies that polarization and how the algorithms push us further, further into our echo chambers. Yeah. I agree with you completely. In some ways, business is a way to, to move outside of those echo chambers, right? Because mm-hmm. The ethics of business you have to be nice to each other right and it's putting it into a, it's a different language and a different way of framing a problem yeah which is another reason why i really like being able to sort of study and understand and dive into these issues in the context of a business school and our business and science too because it's about reimagining business asking questions about business as usual but leveraging business and the best of business to create a better world. Agreed. So uh, imagine like, what's one of the things you'd love to see in the next five years in Atlanta business world? What are some of the, like maybe one or two or just some things you imagine that could get better? Um, I think if uh, one thing is to have more B corporations, I think that's a way to build into your business model. What's a B corporation? So B lab is a nonprofit organization that can certify corporations that meet a certain threshold on governance, environment, community impact. Hmm. They have, it's an extensive uh, survey and audit process. Ones we all know and love are like Patagonia, New Belgium are all B corporations. We have more and more of them in Georgia. In some states you can uh, incorporate as a benefit corporation so it provides that, that legal support as well. But just saying, hey, no, we care about the environment. We care about social impact. We care about governance. And so we're gonna be transparent in the policies we have in place. And if we can meet the, the threshold, then we get a certification. Consumers can look for it in the grocery store. These B corporations usually were historically have been smaller private companies, but now we have examples of multinationals achieving B Corp status. So Danon is uh, probably the best known one. But it's just a way to think about in how do we create metrics and accountability 
on social and environmental impacts and signal to consumers that we are a company that lives our values. And uh, if we can have more of those, it just shows, teaches us about a different way of doing business and creates just a, an ecosystem of organizations that are trying to do good and run successful companies. It's hmm, really good. Professor Wes, Emery's lucky to have you. <laughs> and we're thankful that you came on the show today. Well, well, thank you so much for having me. It was a fun conversation. I went lots of different directions, but that's, I liked it. So it always does. I, you know, I have a curiosity streak that leads to uh, randomness sometimes. So, well, and thanks for all you're doing for just to support Atlanta and our film industry, but also just uh, being a business and civic leader. I know you do a lot of really impactful stuff and we just really appreciate everything you're bringing to the city. Man, it's my pleasure. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, and follow us on Instagram at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. <laughs>